No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my new, fabulous, wonderful co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will shine a light on the issues that you care about and that we can start a dialogue with America uh, about these uh, the things that are important to all of us. So uh, join us. Uh, usually you can call in, but unfortunately we had to pre-record this, so there'll be no call in today. But we have an amazing guest for you. We have an amazing new co-host. So let's get started. First, let me introduce uh, Marilia Duffels, who's just we'll give her a proper uh, uh, reception next week on the show um, and welcome her. She's an amazing person. She's been appointed to position by two Republican presidents. She's a Republican who's turned independent. Uh, she was a former ballet dancer with the National Ballet. She's fluent in foreign languages. And uh, I've been lucky enough to have her as a friend for many, many years. So we we welcome Marilia to the show. And uh, let's talk about our guest. We have a guest uh, tonight, Marilia, who's uh, yes. done just an important you know, piece of work, in my opinion. His name is Hunter Walker, and he's a Absolutely. reporter and an author based in Washington, D.C. Hunter uh, has spent the past decade covering politics. He's currently working on a book about the future of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And, oh, my God, do I want to talk to him about that, because I have <laughs> no idea what's happening there. And he worked for Yahoo News as a White House correspondent uh, for all four years that Donald Trump was in the White House. Uh, his writing has appeared in the New Yorker, Columbia Journalism Review, and on websites of Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he was born and raised in Brooklyn. I was born and raised in Newark, Hunter. We always aspired to move to Brooklyn, but we never had the money. Uh, how are you? And welcome to the show. Not bad, not bad. Thanks so much for having me. It is, it is, I will, will always be glad to show up for my senator. Uh, well, you're a good guy. And, and, and let me tell you, you've just written an explosive piece for Rolling Stone about uh, two people that have come forth and testified to you uh, that they, there were many, many meetings between members of Congress and the people who ended up rioting at the Capitol. So can you tell us about a little bit about that as we start? Well, these two people who spoke to me um, are folks that I'm describing as, you know, an organizer and planner of the main January 6th rally that took place on the White House ellipse 
Uh, it immediately preceded, or some might say precipitated, the violence that um, occurred a mile and a half down the mall at the Capitol. Uh, and these two people have communicated with the House Select Committee uh, that is investigating the attack on the Capitol. Because of this, I granted them anonymity due to the fact they are you know, potential witnesses in an ongoing investigation about violent crimes. And, you know, what they said to me is that among the information they've uh, shared with investigators uh, are allegations that members of Congress were involved in, quote unquote, dozens of briefing calls with organizers of these rallies in the lead up to January 6th. And they also specifically said that Paul Gosar, a congressman from Arizona, had offered them, quote, blanket pardons in an unrelated ongoing investigation as an encouragement to get them to hold, uh, to participate in some of these events. Wow. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's amazing. And, and, and let me ask you, uh, I got a sense from reading your article that the Republicans that are involved or the people, in, the congressmen that are involved are trying to paint this as uh perhaps an organized demonstration that got out of hand. But but from reading your article, I mean, it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like, you know, when you're telling people you'll give them immunity, that you're planning on something happening, right? So, uh, uh, well, yeah. Well, this, this offer of a pardon wasn't an unrelated ongoing investigation. Um, and, you know, I should specify that I have not been able to independently confirm all of these witnesses' allegations. However, I was able to confirm that they were in contact with um, Paul Gosar on January 6th. They also were in contact with mm. Lauren Boebert of Colorado, another one mm. of these Republican members of Congress that they mm. named. So clearly there is some level of communication there. And I also think it's important to point out that we've, you know, January 6th, especially for those of us here in the nation's capital, it played out right in front of our eyes. And along with everything that we saw that day, we've already had a lot of public indications that members of Congress were to some degree involved, uh, and also that you know the Congressional Committee is looking into some of these specific people that were named to me by these sources. And when I say that, here's what I mean. You know, it's important to distinguish, and that'll figure into your question of kind of, you know, was this a planned event? that got out of hand, it's important to distinguish between the ellipse rally, that's where President Trump spoke, and then what happened at the Capitol. So the ellipse, Mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't know, it's sort of the park, the public area just off the South Lawn of the White House. It is about a mile and a half from the... um, And this is where there was that large, quote, America rally, where President Trump stood on the stage, um, you know, reiterated all of his conspiracy theories about the election, and then at the conclusion, encouraged the crowd to march to the Capitol. Uh, this event was planned. It had a Secret Service presence, as, as any event with the president does. Um, and it had large-scale financing and organization from, you know, a constellation of conservative activists. It also had on-stage speaking um, members of Congress, including Madison Cawthorn and Mo Brooks, who reportedly was wearing a bulletproof vest during his remarks. Now, a mile and a half away at the Capitol, you had another event, the quote-unquote wild protest. And this was largely organized by a far-right activist named Ali Alexander. And it also 
seems to have had participation from members of Congress because billed as speakers at that event, you had Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was a congresswoman elect at the time, Bobert and Gosar, among others. So, you know, we already knew that at least on the level of being speakers, members of Congress were involved, you know, with what went on that day. What was interesting is that my sources described to me concerns among the organizers about Ali Alexander's quote-unquote wild protest, both because they observed him, they claim they observed him with militia members who, you know, they viewed as risks of potential violence that day, and also because his event took place right on the side of the Capitol on January 6th as the election was being certified, and that was the event that everyone had come to protest. As one of the organizers put it to me, they knew people weren't there to frickin' sing kumbaya. And they even claimed that, you know, in all of these planning calls, there had been communication with the White House, including uh, Chief of Staff, former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And they claimed that these concerns about potential violence as, you know, related to this wild protest were brought to Meadows. And Hello? <clears throat> I think Hunter's dropped off, uh... Don, maybe you could pick him up. <clears throat> Do you hear me, Don? What happened to our guest? Can we get him back? Okay, thanks, folks. This is the wild, wild west of, of Internet uh, uh, radio, is that <laughs> occasionally things like this happen. Uh, so, Marilia. We're, yes. we're going to ask. I'm going to ask you to ask the next incredible question. I know okay. that. I know that you're just waiting, chomping at the bit. As soon oh, as I get am. him back, uh, what's going on here, Don? Get him. But I also wanted to say, Mike, thank you so much for um, having me as your partner in this. I'm very honored, and it's a thrill, and um, it's just a privilege to be. Um, working with you again uh, after you know what? how many years? Yeah, we we you know we had such a good time. Uh, for our we listening did. audience, let me tell you, Marilli and I had had some of our one of one of our first jobs out of college together, and you know how people bond when they're being abused by their employer, <laughs> you know, right? We all do that. Absolutely. Where, 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 where absolutely where where you work your rear end off and then yes. at the end of the week you look at your paycheck and you go what what am i doing <laughs> you know uh and, yeah. and was certainly that was certainly uh oh, a, yeah. our experience okay and, we and that was back. oh great i'm sorry are you there that's okay oh maybe we don't have our guests back guest phone is having issues okay well uh then i'll uh uh I'll uh, continue to talk to uh, Marilia, and maybe we could text him, Don, and, and, and have him call in. Maybe that's a better way to go, is just to text him a message. He's on a cell phone, and then he can call into the station, and that might work fine. But, yeah, Marilia and I work for a law firm. You know, they made a bazillion dollars and barely paid us, and they were, you know, uh, uh, but it was an interesting experience. And, it was. And, and one of the main bonuses uh, of the job was I got Marilia as a friend. And, uh, and, and the same for me, Mike. It, it truly is. You know, and, and 
you know, I remember, I remember all those days and the wild things we have to do. You know, in in, in Washington D.C., you can't park your car for more than two hours anywhere in the world. And we were oh, so, I forgot I about so that. yeah, I was so poor that I couldn't pay. I couldn't pay to park all day, so I used to run out every two hours and and move my car. And right. you could and you couldn't move it like a half a block because if you did that. They would take You'd also get a ticket. Right. You had to move it like, you know, you had to have a plan three blocks this way, two blocks <laughs> that way. And, you know, I remember all those things. And, and but, but, and, you know. And of course, there was a garage downstairs, but they, yeah. they, wouldn't see fit to allow us to park down there yeah they wouldn't give us parking you know but but uh you know it was it 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 was crazy and then when then you then when we figured out how much money they were making you know (laughs) and and, and, you know it's like what you know it's uh, the 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 guy that was the uh, senior partner law firm had had a a a uh had a uh, polo club. He was the head of the polo club. You know how many horses you need to play polo? You <laughs> need like, yeah. And like we found out, I was like, what? He's got like 10 horses. What the, what's up with that? Yeah, uh, we brought him from Argentina too. From Argentina. How much yeah, does that, it cost? That's not cheap. <laughs> yeah, how much does it cost to FedEx a horse from <laughs> Argentina, right? You know? And so, but. Uh, we learned so much, uh, uh, you know, mostly what we didn't want to do in life. And uh, we both moved on and, and, and you know, just had, um, Marilia's had an amazing life. I certainly have had, you yes. know, an amazing, amazing experience. Yes, you are. Yes. And, and, and uh, you know, but you, you've earned it all, too. Um, oh, you're very you know, sweet. And you, you, you're just, uh, I'm so excited to have you on the show because you're a good person. And, and that's really what it, it it's about. You know, I started this show and then with a friend of mine and then Maria came along for six years and she mm-hmm. was, she was a Republican woman from the West coast. And, and we agreed on more things than we disagreed on. So yeah, absolutely. And that was the purpose of the show was to say, you know, uh, if you if you respect somebody, if you have respect for them, uh, you can listen to whatever position they have and 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 and, you know, and discuss it reasonably. Um, Unfortunately, in America today, I think we've lost lost respect for each other and we managed to put. the issues, our feeling about the issues, we somehow sorry, sorry about that. transferred them to the people. Oh, you're back. Okay, Absolutely. great. That's all right. Marilee and I are old friends. We go back to the beginning of time. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was, I was like uh, when we first worked together. I was like uh, 27. Marilee was like four, and uh, 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 you know. But so we've known each other forever. But it's nice. It's nice to have you back, and I'm sorry I can't remember where we were, Hunter. When we, I think you were telling us about about the Probably whole plan. Alexander, maybe. Yeah. Right. Well, well. First off, I'm glad I didn't interrupt um, really as uh, proper introduction. I, I think right. You did. My phone might have That's karmically right, wrecked for you guys. Yeah, <laughs> it was an act of God, in my opinion. Go ahead. 
So I, I, I was mid-talking. <laughs> I'm not sure where I left off. But basically, you know, there was the Ellipse rally where the president spoke, along with Madison Cawthorn mm-hmm. and Mo Brooks. There was also this wild protest run by Ali Alexander. And the sources, again, both of whom I have verified were involved in planning um, January 6th protest events, you know, basically said that the Alexander event concerned even some of the organizers because this quote-unquote wild protest was taking place right alongside the Capitol um, during the electoral certification, which is what all these people had showed up angry about. They also said that, you know, they had observed Alexander with members of militia groups, including the First Amendment Praetorian. Uh, And as one of these organizers put it to me, quote, they weren't there to sing frickin' kumbaya. And they said that they had gone to Mark Meadows in the White House, along with describing these these meetings with members of Congress. Um, They claimed to have been in touch with Meadows, the former chief of staff, and to have raised concerns about the quote-unquote wild protest. Um, And, you know, it's unclear what he did with that, but the show definitely went on. So, you know, to bring it back to your original question, which was, you know, members of Congress have seemed to kind of dismiss this, um, and focused on the idea this was a planned, peaceful protest. Um, based on the narrative of these organizers, and again, you know, what we publicly know and saw that day, some of these members of Congress, um, specifically Bobart, Green, and Gosar, were participating in the wild protest. So they were not, you know, only participating in the planned major event at the Ellipse. They were participating in an event that was right at the Capitol and that was literally marketed as being quote-unquote wild. Really, do you have a question? Yes. Was I have a couple of questions, please, Hunter, and it's a pleasure to sort of meet you and to listen to you. You're an amazing young man. Um, I Thank wonder... You. What, you're welcome. I wonder if there's any discussion of at the time amongst the the members of Congress and those that were, you know, in your article implicated in this before the event. Were they aware? Were they, there must have been some discussion amongst the people saying, you know, well, we've got this and we've got that and we're going up there, you know, whether it's flares or whatever those people use to get in there, bombs or, you know, little bombs or whatever you call those things they use or, or poles or whatever they had, because some of them must have been armed with whatever they had. And, and that must have been some kind of common knowledge that was conveyed to the members. Was that, did that happen? So, so you know, part of the reason I'm so motivated to really be investigating January 6th as much as I can um, is, you know, I, 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 I am, as we said earlier, a Brooklynite. I always will be. But but for the past few years, Washington has been my home. Um, and I was there that day. And I feel like people outside of the city and people who were not there that day, you know, have not realized how fully serious this event was. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that is because some of these same members, uh, I, I jokingly call them sometimes the January 6th denialist caucus, um, my sources <laughs> have implicated, you know, in in you know, the planning of events that day um, have made a habit of, you know, downplaying what happened. So this includes, you know, Louis Gohmert, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Bobert, um, you know, Mo Brooks. They've, they've participated in these, quote unquote, justice for J6 events, including protests outside the D.C. jail, um, you know, where they've explicitly stood in support of the rioters. Um, Paul Gosar also kind of every time, you know, this comes up, such as in the hearings for the House Select Committee in July, 
some of these denialists will downplay what happened, but Gosar, as he's alleged to have done that day with the quote-unquote blanket pardon, always goes one step further. So, you know, you had at the hearings this summer people saying this was a peaceful protest, this was a peaceful protest. Gosar comes out and says, everyone's political prisoners. Uh, Ashley Babbitt, the woman shot outside the Senate chamber, was a martyr, and the FBI orchestrated the whole thing. Uh, so he, he always takes it further. And, you know, in response to my story, they didn't just lean on the peaceful protest thing. Um, a few of them, notably um, Louis Gohmert and um, Lauren Boebert, uh, denied that they participated in any kind of planning. And, you know, that's just not true on its face, because as I noted, wow. um, even before we had this information, these allegations from my sources, you know, we saw that these people were planned speakers at the event. And I, I, I would ask either of you, I'm sure you're asked to speak at your share of things that literally cannot happen without planning. But what's interesting about, you know, what my sources told me is despite these prior public indications of some degree of congressional involvement, they kind of put a clearer frame around it and let us know one one you know, claim of what that involvement might have looked like. So they said that in addition to speaking at and attending some of these events, the members of Congress were on these calls where they were talking to organizers. And, and we have to keep in mind, there were the two protests that day, but there were also protests around the country in the aftermath of the election. And this was all aimed at opposing the electoral certification on January 6th. And they say that the members of Congress were talking to organizers at these various events around the country, advising them on um, locations to hold events in, to pressure, quote unquote, potentially persuadable senators, um, and also to trade, you know, what they saw as evidence of election fraud back and forth, um, and to talk about what would be presented on the House floor that day, January 6th. So. What's interesting about that is when you look at those um, state-based events, you have people like Jim Jordan and Paul Gosar um, who participated in those state-based events. So, again, that's another you know, bit of known planning and involvement. Um, but also, you know, when, when we look at the full sweep of this, Marjorie Taylor Greene, her office responded to the story by saying, you know, oh, well, she was just involved in the objections. And that's basically what my source said. She was almost confirming it. Um, so we do not have indications from my sources um, or from anything we know yet that the members of Congress sort of definitely, you know, had any involvement in violence. We don't know that. Uh, so far, it is just sort of that they were planning these challenges to the election. Um, and, you know, Green's office also pointed out to me Democrats objected uh, to the certification of Trump's victory in 2017. So I think, you know, their best case right now is they were involved in a stepped up, more dramatic version of what they saw as political gamesmanship. All of that being said, as I was pointing out to you earlier, you know, a couple of these members were involved in that quote unquote wild protest that now even some of the other organizers are saying was dangerous. Um, and, you know, that day I was in the crowd and there clearly were people with weapons. I mean, I've covered on my own website how um, police records show there were multiple guns seized that day and how we likely only only know a fraction of how many guns were in that crowd. Um, I saw people with the gallows. I saw large wooden poles. Uh, one guy who I can picture clear as day when I close my eyes had an axe handle um, with a little tiny paper American flag taped to it as if he was Ugh. pretending to be carrying a flag and was ready to let fly with the handle. Wow. We know um, people bought, brought bear spray 
you know, um, as part of this House investigation, members of the Capitol Police and MPD testified, and they described the fighting that went on as, quote unquote, medieval. Uh, And I bring that up in Mm. relation to your question, because, you know, the members of Congress were there that day and they were walking in. And if you remember Josh Hawley saluting that crowd, some of whom were clearly carrying blunt objects. So, you know, I'm really happy that people are excited about my reporting, and I think it really does bring new details and a clearer picture onto things. But I think we also all must remember, take heed and really pay attention to what we saw with our own eyes that day. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one thing, one comment that I have to make, first of all, uh, you know, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Louis Gomart, uh, these are people that have always stood against the District of Columbia, so we don't like them to begin with. You know, I've referred to Louis Gomart as the dumbest member of Congress. Uh, I was at a He's hearing. He's got a lot of competition for that. Well, he does, and, and you know what? I was at a uh, hearing one time where he was talking about giving every military base in America a congressman because uh, they were the same as the District of Columbia. And Maxine Waters stood up and, and, and yelled, this is so stupid, I can't take it anymore. And she walked <laughs> out, you know, but but so I'm not surprised that these guys are engaged. But one thing I want to ask you uh, is that, Hunter, is that we had a guest on the show. We had a guest on the show who was a University of Maryland professor who studies revolutions. And he's been to tons of protests. And he said the thing that really surprised him about this protest is how many middle-aged people were there. That it wasn't just, you know, young people, angry people. There were, he said, he saw people at the protest who were then, he ran into at the Marriott having drinks afterwards. You know, that, that, that thing, that, that really surprised him that there were so many older people involved. Uh, and, and to me, that speaks that, you know, guys my age don't just show up. You know, you have to organize them. Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, um, anyway, I just wanted to add that. Go ahead, Morelia. You can ask him. Oh, I, a couple of things. I just also wanted to ask about the Steve Bannon um, issue and how that subpoena is going to pa- How do you think, Hunter, that subpoena is going to pan out? And do you think, as is the current vibe, that there is so much um, behind Bannon that connects everything to Trump, that that's the reason for the resistance of the subpoena? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, let me tackle everything both of you guys just said. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Senator <laughs> Brown, I think you're right that, you know, I, I covered Occupy Wall Street. I covered all of the protests last summer. Um, you know, I'm sort of a veteran of this beat. Um, and this crowd was absolutely older. Um, than anything I've ever seen. Um, mm. and, and, you know, one thing I'm trying to make clear in my reporting, and, and, and I hope as you can hear this is an issue that, that really matters a lot to me, um, is the fact that there was a political, financial, and organizational infrastructure behind what happened that day. Um, so in a series of stories for um, Rolling Stone, my own uh, newsletter, The Uprising, um, and also uh, when I was at Yahoo, um, I've published pieces about you know, a couple different people who are known to have organized large sort of, you know, one place in one place, they called it Patriot caravans of buses, you know, that brought people to DC that day. Um, And Mm -hmm. as someone who was among that crowd and spoke to a lot of these people, I think it's really important to point out that a lot of these people sincerely believed the false claims of election fraud. They believed that the election was stolen from them. And a question I put Mm -hmm. to people, you know, often is, um, you know, what would you do 
if you sincerely believed America was under attack? Um, you know, would you show up with an axe handle? Right. And I think it's a more complex question than we give it credit for. And that's why I think it's incredibly important to focus not just on the people who broke into our capital, but also on the people who, you know, um, told them the election was stolen. Also on the people who directed them to take their energy and bring it to the electoral certification. Uh, and that gets to your question, um, Melilio, which is, you know, the... Um, the, there are two investigations right now into January 6th. There's the mm -hmm. uh, House Select Committee investigation that we've been discussing. Uh, these are the folks who communicated with uh, the organizer and the planner that I spoke to. There's also the FBI probe. And the two investigations mm -hmm. are essentially taking the opposite approach. Uh, the FBI probe, which is the largest in the Bureau's history, um, has thus far led to charges against over 600 people. Uh, but the vast majority of people uh, the FBI is focusing on are sort of your rank-and-file Trump supporters who broke into the Capitol that day. Um, I've mm -hmm. talked to sources familiar with that investigation, and they say they're taking a really traditional criminal investigation approach where you know it's sort of a pyramidal structure and they go from bottom up. The House Select Committee mm -hmm. has seemed to take kind of the opposite approach. Um, they're looking at the high-level organization of these efforts to challenge the election uh, and also, you know, the propagation of what people call the big lie. Um, so they've sent a flurry of subpoenas. They've focused on executive branch agencies. Um, they've focused on, you know, members of the president's inner circle, organizers of these events. Um, Paul Gosar's chief of staff was named in one of their record requests. Uh, Mark Meadows has been subpoenaed, as you say, Steve Bannon. But here's the rub. Bannon defied that subpoena. And the mm -hmm. House Select Committee may be doing, you know, an aggressive investigation looking at the kind of upper echelon of January 6th organization, but they have no criminal authority. So, for example, in the Bannon case, what they had to do, and I believe this was about two weeks ago, was make a referral to the Justice Department, basically, you know, accusing him of criminal contempt of Congress. Thus mm -hmm. far, the Justice Department has not acted on uh, they may be able to make other criminal referrals, but, um, you know, I'm already hearing grumbling from a lot of Democrats and progressives wondering why the Justice Department hasn't acted more quickly, both on the Bannon referral and on the question of targeting organizers. I mean, California Senator Alex Padilla um, spoke to Attorney General Merrick Garland at a recent um, Judiciary Committee oversight hearing and asked him if he was going to review and consider the Rolling Stone article. Uh, that I wrote. So I, you know, I'm not really clear where the DOJ is. Um, and it is important as people watch this House Select Committee that they understand that, you know, the um, consequences it can impose are fairly limited without DOJ support. Yeah. And to follow up on Murley's question, you know, politicians are very much indemnified from everything, right? Yeah. We've seen mm -hmm. even, especially in Washington, uh, people get convicted of crimes and then come back and get reelected. Whereas yeah. if, if, if you have a prison record, maybe you can't vote, but you can run for public office. Uh, so <laughs> they have really kind of That's insulated themselves. Yeah. They really have insulated themselves from, uh, from Excellent point. That. And, and I think we should mention that in your article, uh, in addition to Gosar and, and Boebert and and Gomert, uh, you also have Andy Biggs and and Madison Cawthorn and Mo Brooks as, as being involved. There are a lot of people involved in this, weren't there? I mean, how do you have that many people involved casually 
don't you have to structure it somehow? Wouldn't you think that 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 they would have some? <laughs> is there any indication that they had any interaction with each other, or just with uh, right. just with the protesters? And was it just well, on the it, House side, or was there any Senate like? Yeah. What did McConnell know? Yeah. Well, so we yeah. Know. So let's be clear. Let's be clear here. What what my sources described to me were they described them as quote unquote briefings, you know, conference calls that that took place between the January sixth main ellipse rally organizers and the members of Congress. Um, so you know they've said that members and staff were on those calls. So you know they were definitely in touch. But keep in mind what I said earlier. You know, half of uh, you know some of the conversations, according to my sources, were about persuading members of the Senate, because, you know, as I noted, Democrats objected, attempted to object um, to uh, President Trump's certification in 2016, in 2017. They didn't have um, the support of any senators. And, you know, the rules provide that you need at least one senator to formally object to any electoral certification on the floor. Uh, and what we ultimately had, you know, uh, that day was over uh, about 100 House members and only a handful of senators joined them. Um, so, you know, the House members definitely drove a lot of this process. But I think, you know, while it's important for accuracy and for history and certainly on the legal front to kind of understand that there were state-based events, there was the Ellipse Rally, there was the wild protest, it's also important not to lose sight of the forest through the trees. And what we clearly had was an effort to subvert a fair and free election on false premises. And that effort clearly, without any further investigation needed, fully confirmed, had the involvement and participation of the president, top allies like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman, multiple senators, multiple members of Congress, media outlets, um, you know, on the far right. There, there was a very large concerted effort to overturn the election uh, and I think it's really important not to lose sight of that as we focus on sort of, you know, some of the violence that accompanied it. Well, you know, you you worked, uh, you covered the White House during the Trump years for for four years, and we've seen the the incredible grip that this man has on the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, I wasn't alive for FDR and Harry Truman and, and you know, but but I've never seen a Democrat. I've been involved for 40 years, but I've never seen a Democrat that had this kind of control over, over, over the party or a Republican, to be honest with you. Ronald Reagan was amazingly popular president right. you know but but he was but this guy is like i don't know like a cult leader and i think maybe yeah. maybe maybe one positive thing would come out of the election in virginia uh with terry mcauliffe and i worked together at the dnc so i hated to see my former colleague lose but one thing is that the candidate kind of separated him from himself from trump and 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 this may send a message to Republicans that you don't need him to get elected. Do you think there's a feeling out there in the Republican Party, given your your covering of the White House, that they need Trump, that they can't they're not going to get they're not going to get through the primary without him? It's a pretty complex question, but I think, you know, when we look at these members that were um you know, allegedly uh, involved in some of the planning that day, uh, you know, for the objections that day, uh, we're seeing people who are from deep red districts, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's notable, and I think that's why your, your question about the Senate, you know, was pretty sharp. It's notable that we see sort of deep red House members lead the way on this effort to challenge the election, while, you know, senators and especially those, you know, in, in less staunchly red states have been a little quieter. Um, so, you know, clearly, you know, Trump's numbers are complicated. Um, and, you know, if you need to reach more than just the base, um, you know, fully embracing him um, can be difficult. I think what we saw in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin is a candidate who managed to distance himself somewhat from Trump, didn't appear at events with him, but also sent a lot of signals, you know, that he agreed with aspects of Trump's agenda, um, you know, with sort of uh, the anti-COVID, you know, anti-COVID measures stuff, some of the culture war stuff, you know, that sends the signal Mm -hmm. without you having to have Trump stand behind you. Um, You know, I think in a presidential election, it's a little more complicated because Trump does have this ironclad support in, you know, a, a sizable portion of the Republican Party, a third or so. Um, and in a primary, in a Republican primary, it's hard to imagine anyone who's directly challenged by Trump or going against Trump emerging. Um, obviously, as we saw in 2020, you know, the Trump appeal is a little bit more complicated in a general and maybe not enough to beat the Democrats. Uh, but that being said, you know, Lord knows, uh, you know, it is as shadow senator, you know, the Republicans have a lot of structural advantages in government between um, the way the Congress is built, as we know, in D.C. or the Electoral College. Um, so, you know, as he has in the past, Trump, I think, or a Trump ally um, certainly has a plausible shot, you know, to win a general election, um, even if the popular vote kind of seems out of reach. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say about Youngkin that he just showed what a great politician he is, because what you explained, that's the perfect political scenario for a politician. Right. I stand against uh, gun violence, but I'm firmly committed to the Second Amendment and the right of every American to own an AK-47. You want to you want to try to play both sides against the middle. and, and, And Youngkin did it beautifully. Go ahead, Morelia. I'm sorry. That's true. Oh, no, that's all right, Mike. I was just commenting. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're starting to, believe it or not, uh, we've got about 15 minutes left. So let me ask you, uh, what is what is the question that we should be asking you that we're not? What do you want to say that that we're, we're not, you know, we're not getting to? If you, you know, if you had one comment to make uh, on this show, what would it be? Well, you know, one, one thing I would say, uh, and, and I haven't had too much chance to get into this and all, all the discussion around this story, you know, again, the new information I'm bringing to light, you know, helps people understand what uh, congressional investigators have. I think there's a question about, you know, what they and the DOJ then do with it. Um, are they able to substantiate it? It also helps bring, you know, into clearer focus, you know, what involvement of certain people allegedly looked like. Um, But that being said, even without any, you know, new witness testimony, even without any new investigation or information, you know, we know that the president got up and I think it was like 3 a.m. in the wee hours of the morning after the election and, Mm -hmm. you know, 
falsely declared victory, um, you know, repeatedly propagated, um, you know, false claims about the election. Uh, as we know from the recent Senate Judiciary Report and, and piles of news reporting, you know, pressed Mike Pence and others in his administration to help him overturn the election, and then ultimately got up on stage at the Ellipse that day uh, after calling all his people to D.C. on Twitter and encouraged them to march to the Capitol. So, you know, we don't need to learn anything new to know that there was an attack on their election, on our election. It turned violent and Donald Trump was directly personally involved. That is already clear. What I found really interesting in the conversation with the uh, organizer and the planner who spoke to me is, again, according to their version of events, um, you know, they really expected the Ellipse event to be normal. They didn't even want um, this wild protest to take place on the Capitol. And they described themselves as extremely dismayed when the president encouraged the crowd to march, because in their mind, the Ellipse rally was supposed to be this, you know, thing that kind of would be a sideshow, a kind of live concert version accompanying the objection on the House <laughs> floor. Uh, as they put it to me, they expected to potentially be there until midnight. And they literally put the onus on Trump for directing those, as we pointed out earlier, armed people towards the Capitol. Hunter, how about the, the sort of Internet traffic that the FBI and Homeland Security and others must have been monitoring before this? There must have been some knowledge of this. Do you have you gotten anything on that? <laughs> well, you know, one thing that's funny is people always ask me, you know, kind of, were you surprised? that it turned violent that day, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and my answer to that is always, you know, I went downtown um, wearing my helmet and safety glasses. You know? <laughs> so no, I was not surprised. Um, <laughs> I think there was a lot of indication. I mean, first off, and I think this is, you know, important to remember, DC had a very violent year last year. Um, mm -hmm. You know, frankly, when I say I had my helmet and safety glasses, I developed a routine for kind of going down to protest violence downtown. Um, you know, January 6th was sort of the far right version of it, but we saw, you know, we've seen a lot of tensions in this city. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it was absolutely abundantly clear um, in online conversation that you had armed groups, you know, militia groups and various people who were very angry about the false claims of election fraud converging on the city. Um, mm -hmm. those of us who live here will know that, you know, in the months from the election to January 6th, there were regularly these conflicts downtown around the Hotel Harrington, um, with the Proud Boys. Um, and then, you know, I think you're referencing right. most immediately this, this Washington Post report, um, that just came out and kind of says that, you know, the FBI, um, you know, and DHS were sort of aware of internet chatter. Well, I would say to you, you know, respectfully, like, no crap. <laughs> so I'm, I'm censoring myself, but, you know, I was aware of it. We were all aware of it. You know, this was openly, I mean, again, I think that's my main point. Like this happened in front of our eyes. We have to recognize what happened. It was openly planned and encouraged by politicians to some degree. Um, and, you know, there were open indications it would be a violent day, which is why I think it's, you know, so damning that, um, you know, there was not really a law enforcement response apart from, you know, a small Capitol Police presence. 
Uh, the D.C. MPD, and I say this as someone who was on the steps of the Capitol that day, was evidently, you know, not called in to the building itself, which is obviously they need permission to do that. It's not their jurisdiction. And this has been reported a lot. The National Guard took hours to show up. And, you yes, know, as your listeners right. may know, in D.C., the National Guard is overseen not by a governor because we don't have one, but directly mm-hmm. by the president. Um, so, mm-hmm. again, you know, there's all this stuff that we know and that we saw where there's no question, you know, President Trump was involved in encouraging people to come, falsely challenging the election, sending them to the Capitol, and then not calling in, you know, law enforcement fast enough. Well, you know, that's a real question that I have, too, is that I've been arrested at the Capitol uh, by the Capitol Police, and the Capitol Police are an amazing group of people. And usually what they do, they're so good at this, is they overwhelm you. You know, I remember being arrested and they were so polite to me. Um, Are you okay? Uh, Are the handcuffs too tight? You know, can we help (laughs) you into the van? Really? But, But when you look up, there's five big people standing around you and you're getting the message don't try anything because these guys are ready. And they weren't ready on 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 that day. Right. Uh, the MPD, as you point out, as much as we should re- hate this because they, they don't recognize us, but the MPD is what saved them, didn't they? They walked in at the last minute because of, of, of the things that you pointed out, but... Uh, the Capitol Police were really overwhelmed, and um, that, to me, really is unusual because I've never known them to be overwhelmed. Yes, exactly. So you, so you think there was any any uh, effort to have them stand down? Have you seen any evidence of that? So let me just describe, you know, what I know and what I saw, because I think it's very important, you know, especially on stuff as contentious as this to, you know, really clearly stick to the known facts. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me take you through my day. Right. Um, I live up by Adams Morgan. I sort of entered into my routine for DC protest violence, which is like, you know, throw a spare mask and, and the helmet in the bag, um, wear glasses instead of contacts. Cause that's better for tear gas. Get the, get the, safety goggles ready and get downtown. Um, I, you know, thought the focal point would be at the Olympics because that's where President Trump was. Um, As he concluded his speech, um, before he even wrapped up his remarks, and this was apparently, you know, right about when the first barricades were breached, um, you know, he made that admonition, you know, encouraging people to start marching to the Capitol. And indeed they did. And so I marched with that crowd down Pennsylvania Avenue um, and for me, you know, I remember this very vividly, the first indication um, that um, things were, were far different from any other protest I'd covered um, were, you know, you had, I would say, about a mile from the Ellipse down Pennsylvania Avenue, um, all of a sudden a convoy of like three DHS cars with sirens blaring um, started trying to mm-hmm. cut through the crowd. Um and the crowd, and these weren't even the people who initially breached the Capitol, swarmed around those cars, started pounding on them, and mm-hmm. turned them around. Um, <laughs> and for me, as, as a journalist who's covered a lot of that, that was a, you know, that was a whoa moment because it meant things were really out of control. 
And Senator, to your point about, you know, people being overwhelmed, typically by law enforcement, what we saw was that there simply was not enough security around the Capitol. And the numbers of this crowd, which was clearly in the thousands, were actually the ones doing the overwhelming. Um, you know, so given what we what we know about how much, you know, online indication there was that this was going to be a dangerous fraught day in D.C. I mean, you know, for example, the inauguration two weeks later looked completely different with, you know, a totally fortified downtown. Um, you know, right. one question I have mm-hmm. is why was so little law enforcement you know, stationed there in the first place. We knew um, that the Capitol was literally a target. I, especially with Mark Meadows allegedly being warned, was a permit granted for um, a wild protest at a building that was a target on such a fraught day. And Mm -hmm. then as I stood there watching people break windows, climb in and out, ransack the Capitol, initially um, the MPD was all in a line sort of across that Peace Park. Um, and having seen MPD, you know, very swiftly dispatch large crowds this summer, seeing clearly that the Capitol Police was so overwhelmed, I literally stood there wondering, oh, my God, when are they going to call them in? Because it was very clear to me that where they were standing, you know, they were just on the edge of federal federal jurisdiction and they were waiting for permission. Uh, you're right, Senator, that once the MPD showed up, they primarily cleared the crowd Um you know, National Guard came in around five or six in the evening when it was already getting dark. They sort of did the final sweep. Um, but that's how late they were, you know, that the MPD basically had cleaned everything up. And and I just I think it's really important to underscore that the lack of initial support and the lack of reinforcement that the Capitol Police received um, subjected them to what they've described as, quote unquote, medieval fighting. Uh, MPD yes. as well. I mean, this was hand-to-hand combat on the steps of the Capitol, um, you know, weapons as well. Um, and I've actually talked to people on the Capitol Police uh, as recently as last week or so who were telling me that officers are still out to this day with injuries they suffered on January 6th. Uh, and I you know, was going to just, just, if I may oh, just interrupt, I just have to say, as borne out by the fact that I forget how many died. And and I have to say it in honor of their memory, these poor guys lost their lives because of all this insanity that was uncontrolled, unprepared for, et cetera, et cetera. So my apologies for interrupting, Hunter. No, no, no. I I mean, I think that's really an important point. I mean, part of the reason I call some of these Republican House members January 6th denialists is they've tried to quibble um, you know, except for Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was trying to yes. enter the Senate chamber, um, they've tried to quibble with the, the handful of deaths we saw that day. Um, you know, specifically Brian Sicknick, who died, you know, I think soon after yes. being hit with bear spray. Um, yes. And then officers who committed suicide in the almost immediate aftermath. They've tried to deny mm-hmm. these people's pain. They've tried to deny their deaths. And they literally sided with the rioters. And I have to say that one of the most jarring things, you know, that I saw that day were people literally brawling with MPD and Capitol Police while waving Blue Lives Matter flags. And, you Mm. know, the president's supporters, uh, former President Mm. Trump's supporters, and the Republican Party, you know, always frame themselves as standing by law enforcement. And, you know, I've talked to some of these officers, and they are still dealing with trauma. And what makes it worse is, you know, they stood up for us. They literally defended the democracy. They, they put their lives on the line um, and were yes. subjected to terrible abuse. And we're not Absolutely. thanking them. There's no, there's no ribbon for January 6th. There's no hashtag. In fact, we're questioning their pain and we're questioning whether it happened at all. 
And I think, you know, as Washingtonians, we really need to be cognizant about it because MPD and the Capitol Police, this this is our hometown. This is our police force. And, you know, in in terms of the country and the public discourse, they've quite literally been left uh, to hang out to dry. Yes, absolutely. Well, Well put. Well, and you have to remember, you know, what a tough job the Capitol Police have, you know, because every member of Congress, all the members of the House and the Senate think they are singularly the most important people on the planet. So to have to defend them, right, Marilia? We both worked Absolutely with them. Absolutely right. To have to yeah. defend these guys, you know, it, it, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough, fine line to walk. And I don't yeah. think any Capitol Police officer in their wildest imagination ever believed that they would be in hand-to-hand combat with anybody. You know, I really don't. I really don't think that that I mean, physically, they may have been prepared for it, but I don't think mentally they were prepared for it. No. And in the 21st century. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've run out of time, Hunter, and you've been an amazing guest. And I hope as more as the story grows, as, as, as I'm sure it will, I'm sure it'll be, you know, we'll be seeing it on uh uh, all the mainstream uh, news channels soon, as soon as the, the committee starts getting into the nitty gritty of this stuff, uh, that you'll come back and talk to us again. You've been, really been a great guest and we appreciate your time. Yes, you've done an amazing job, truly. Well, thank you so much and thanks for thanks for everything you guys do to to get our city proper representation. That's that's an, that's an issue. I'm an objective journalist, but I think we can say everybody deserves no taxation without representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can promise you, you guys will be hearing a lot more about about all this stuff soon. Right. Great. Great. And thank for your support. We can always use the support of the press. You know, so we very much appreciate that. Thank you. And and let me leave our listeners today. First, let me thank Marilia for a great job today as her first interview, and and also tell you that we end our uh, we end our show every week with a with a song. And I was tormented on what to do: a song in honor of Marilia, a song in honor of of Hunter. But then I decided since Hunter. since uh, no since uh, uh, Thursday is Veterans Day that we would do a, a song in honor of veterans. Uh, I just want to say that thank you to everybody that's ever put on a uniform and stood up for my wife and my family and Marilia and my friends and, and all of America. God bless you for your service and thank you. This song goes out to you, Lee Greenwood. God bless the USA. We'll see you Amen next week. Amen to that, Mike. Yeah. Thanks, Marie. Thank you.